you're listening to the Degrees of Freedom podcast. Conversations about higher education in the 21st century between students and teachers. Produced at the University of Groningen. Welcome to another episode of Degrees of Freedom. My name is Tasso Sarampalis. My name is Amy O'Connell. And today we're talking about lectures, not lectures in the way that we talked about them a couple of episodes ago, but more from the perspective of the human experience, what it feels like to be standing in front of a crowd, to be preparing to be in front of a crowd, to take in all of this energy. And of course, since we always do this in this, uh, in this podcast, we're going to look at the experience of being in a lecture from multiple perspectives, from the perspective of uh, an audience member of a student, and from the perspectives of uh, a lecturer. And to help us address those discussions today, we're joined with Sebastian Matteau and uh, Mithra Hesseling. So maybe I can start with you, Sebastian. You can introduce yourself. Sure, I'm happy. Thanks for, for having me. So I work, uh, I'm a colleague of Tassels, actually. I work at the Experimental Psychology Unit. So that's a subunit uh, of the psychology department. And there I do both research and teaching. So, and of course the teaching part is uh, most relevant here. So uh, mainly I teach one course called Introduction to Psychology. It's one of these big sort of lecture focused courses in the, in the first year. And I'm engaged in various others, teaching activities, including guest lectures in the masters, coordinating uh, the master track, things, things like that. Nice, and Mitra? Yeah, I am a, a research master's student at the faculty. I am doing uh, developmental psychology, but before that I graduated from sociology actually. And I also did a minor in neuroscience. So I've seen quite a few faculties. And right now I also work on the side as a, a TA here at the faculty, mainly assisting in uh, course support, but also sometimes in front of a class doing uh, practicals or lectures uh, concerning interview training. So already from the things that you've said in your introductions, I have a lot of questions, but I wanted to ask the most basic and perhaps most difficult question uh, for this episode. And that is, what is a lecture for you? I want to focus on lectures, not practicals, not interactive kind of tutorials, but the experience of being in a lecture. And as we have been preparing for this episode, I keep asking myself, what my priorities in lectures are and what my vision for a lecture is and whether I see it as an exchange of information, as some kind of um, gathering of a learning community. Do I see it as an equitable relationship between the audience and its, and its presenter? These are sort of the things that I wanted to ask you about. Mitra, maybe I can ask you first because you've, as you've described in your introduction, you've gone from um, uh, the sociology program to the research master program, you've taught your own lectures, you've said different minor experiences in different faculties. What does a lecture mean to you? Yeah, that's a really big question. Because like, the first time I really got into a lecture is already a very long time ago. But it was just so strange to just be in a classroom or in a lecture hall to say it like that, and just be listening to someone telling you everything coming of course from that high school experience i actually took a few years off before i went to studying so it was completely new to me coming from a work environment to just listening but i was really excited about it because i'm very curious about learning about getting new information and it feels really good to just be there seeing someone who is very passionate about their topic trying to really educate you about it I think over time, of course, lectures do get a little bit more the same and the same on. But I find that um, you find very quickly which teachers really like teaching and which don't. So you get more excited for those where you can feel that someone is really passionate about it. And I also try to really relay that when I am in front of a lecture myself. So I'm really trying to engage with the crowd. Yeah, I think we've all kind of seen those moments where you've tried to interact with a classroom and that people get like very quiet. So I, I knowing that I'm also now one of the people answering maybe a bit more quickly <laughs> to not leave that gap of silence. But yeah, I, I think it's both overwhelming, but at the same time, a very interesting and, and open environment to really work uh, and learn for yourself. Does it feel like a community? Does it feel like uh, a place to to be with other learners and with um, with with teachers, or does it feel more detached than this? 
yeah, I, I would not necessarily call it a community, but more like you do have like a shared experience at that moment, but it's definitely everyone is there a bit more individually. Um, like, of course, some people do click together and that's obviously always the case when you're in a social environment. But again, it also really depends on, on the lecturer if they really try to engage, if they give you a moment to reflect with your peers and stuff like that, then it does feel a bit more like community. But in general, I would say lecture is definitely more detached. And do you feel like that's the same way? Um, so you've obviously done a bachelor's in sociology, you've then done a minor, and now you're doing your master's. Has that progressed or have you seen changes between your bachelor's degree and your master's or anything specific? I think, especially because I'm in a research master, we have very dedicated uh, students who really want to learn more and are very eager. And of course, we also get to pick our own topics a bit more. So people are way more interacting with each other in comparison to the bachelor, where maybe a lot of people are not as motivated because they just want to get a degree in the first place. But when you do sign up for a research master, you know there's going to be a lot of hard work. So we do see a lot more people interacting, also talking to the teacher, asking more questions, answering the questions. So that does feel a bit closer, but the overall experience is still, there's a teacher in front of you and they talk to you, in my opinion. <laughs> So one of these teachers is Sebastian. Yeah. How do you feel about uh, the way that Mitra is describing this as a shared experience, but one that is an individual yeah. one? How do you approach this? Well, it is, right? I mean, it's a, it's, it's a very stereotyped form of teaching, I would say, where you basically you have one lecturer, more or less one directional, providing information to, generally speaking, a very large group of students, having slides uh, to explain a particular topic. And a little bit of interaction is always is always nice, and I like to think of my lectures as being pretty pretty interactive. But of course, at the end of the day, the lectures of the kind that we're talking about are sort of sending information to a large group of uh, large group of students, and it's one form one useful form of teaching, I guess, especially of course in the context of very large groups of students. And that's also why, if you go to the research masters, there's much less of that kind of lecturing, and it's mostly sort of some, some kind of a hybrid between a discussion group and a, and a lecture, but, but for first year psychology. And I imagine the same is true for first year sociology. There are so many students that it's a very common form and a form that I like actually as a teacher. I, I am. Have you seen the lecture change since you were a student or has the format stayed pretty much the same? No, I would say the format has stayed pretty much the same. If something has changed since I was a student, which is difficult to say, right? Because I also changed a lot myself. So, But then I would say that there's less emphasis on lectures than there used to be. That now there is a more mixed, mixed, for example, you know, with the academic skills groups, lots of small group, uh, small group teaching. So, but the lectures to the extent that they are still there, I think are pretty much the same as when I uh, was a student. Mitra, I want to return back to something that you said earlier, and that is that uh, in the beginning, coming out of high school and, uh, in fact, uh, coming out of an environment where you were working before you started university, lectures in the beginning felt very new and very fresh and they had an excitement mm -hmm. to them. And slowly they started becoming more repetitive. You started, mm -hmm. I, I suppose, noting uh, patterns. Um, are there any particular patterns that make attending lectures repetitive or seem repetitive? Or is it just the very nature of the fact that it's you've had many of them so far? I think it's definitely that you start noticing a lot of things um, when you're in a lecture. And it, again, it's always very individual to how a lecturer approaches. But for example, you know that there are some teachers who are incredibly passionate about it, about what they're teaching, or they are really the expert on their level. And they want to share so much information. So you already know there's going to be a lot of information flying at you in those lectures. And I also find that, that sometimes it can be a little intimidating because then... Um, for example, I have two teachers that I know of that are incredibly good in what they do, but they also therefore don't really follow as well how it is for newcomers. So then you also get a bit nervous to ask them questions because sometimes I just want to know what I don't understand, but I don't know what I don't understand. So I don't know how to formulate the question. And then it's like, could you maybe go back a bit? But then you also start wondering about yourself, like if I ask it again, is he going to explain it clear or is it going to be more difficult to understand? 
But at the same time, you also know, you get to know very quickly that some teachers are very open to having that conversation during the lecture and really invite for discussions. It, it really depends on, on, on the topic and whether you like it yourself or if the people around you are motivated as well. Because if you are in a lecture and a lot of people are just talking to each other through the lecture, then I might as well stay home. It's sometimes what I also think, because then I know I'm not going to hear what the teacher is saying. So it's more the environment that gets kind of repetitive and not as much the lectures, because every time there is, of course, a new topic. But yeah, the environment is very uh, recognizable, to put it like that. Actually, now, so Tussles asked, what, what is a lecture? And now, and I, I, I suspect that Tussles and I have the picture of a lecture as being a physical lecture. Where, mm -hmm. where all the students are physically present and anything that deviates from that, like for example, it being streamed or recorded, is essentially sort of a farce, sort of a derivative that is not really a lecture. But now I'm realizing actually that for you, that may actually be very different because you're a large part of your, your universe. So when you think of a lecture, do you, do you perceive actually an, an online lecture as a worthy replacement of a physical lecture or, or do you also have the picture in mind of actually going physically to a lecture room? I think I think sometimes they are very interchangeable, but there's also times when it's really like I've had online lectures where someone was just talking to the camera and that's it. So that makes mm. it feel even more detached, in my opinion. And then, yeah, I've, let's be fair, I've been, during COVID times, I've met, taken many lectures from my bed, just chilling. Yeah. So that does feel a bit different, but it also actually for a lot of other lectures made it quite easy for me to follow because there was no one else interrupting in any sense. And of course, you could type your questions. So you could just read that and, and the information would just come later. But I don't think it really feels the same as going to a lecture hall and being there. Because I also noticed from a lot of teachers that when you're actually there and they actually see your face, they also tend to slow down a bit if they see that a lot of people are confused. And you do miss that experience when you just do online lectures. So yeah, the, the the subconscious, the body language is just completely missing, I feel. So actually, maybe I, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, Sebastian, but as you're asking this question, let me return back to your original answer of what a lecture is and how you see it more as a delivery of information. I also know from our private discussions that you really find attending lectures and being there in person, mm -hmm. sharing a physical space with uh, everybody who is involved in the lecture to be very important to you yeah. in, in terms of connectedness, in terms of value, in terms of meaning. Um, it, it, how does that square up with your original question of being kind of detached? Yeah, I see what you mean, because on the one hand, I'm describing a lecture as just sending. And if you're just sending, why wouldn't you do that essentially in the form of a YouTube video? So I think uh, in part, it's also just my personal enjoyment of, of giving a lecture, which is much higher when you're uh, when you're standing in front of a lecture hall and in front of a webcam, but I think even in a situation where you're mostly sending, right? And of course, there's always interaction, right? There's always you always ask questions, and and there is a Mentimeter poll, and there's some form of interaction. But if you have 300 students, that interaction is going to be limited for most of the students. But I think it is still there is there is an element of having some kind of mutual excitement that you have if you're in the same place that you don't have if you're watching if you're watching something uh, online you know like if you're a lecture is essentially somewhat between pure information and a theater act right and if you want to go to a stand-up comedy show of course you can watch it on netflix which is fun but it is much better if you're actually there even though you are not having any meaningful interaction with the stand-up comedian right he's doing a show and that's it and I think it's a little bit like that for lectures too, that everyone enjoys it more if you're sort of having that shared experience physically, even if there is not, practically speaking, that much happening that you couldn't also do online. Because I think that's true. There is, there is yeah. practically speaking, you can do a lot of the lecture stuff online. But in terms of experience for me, and maybe it's a form of wishful thinking that it's also like that for students, but certainly for me, it is just much more enjoyable and engaging and memorable when it happens in, uh, in person. Do you find that when students ask questions that that makes the information maybe easier to relay or it just makes the overall experience more enjoyable for you as a professor as well? No, no that's, that's an, I, I take the number of questions that you get definitely as sort of a, a sign of whether the lecture is perceived as being engaging or, or not. Although I, the, you also have to be careful because the, the, the proportion of students that ask, it's usually only like a handful of students that asks all the questions. But nevertheless, I do 
yeah, it's kind of like a thermometer telling me whether things are going well or not. Do you find that the number of people who ask questions changes through the different years of their program? So I know you teach first years. I also know that you teach, um, actually, I'm, I think you teach also in the third year of the program, and I know you teach in the master too. Uh, do you find that the number of people who engage in questions and just the number of questions changes through the years? Yeah, it proportionally increases a lot. So It increases. The number of questions that I, I feel that way uh, in the master's, for example, I don't actually really teach a full full course in the master's, but I teach a few uh, guest lectures. And, and there I feel the groups that are much smaller, let's say 20 or so. We also have a small master program, right? If you do clinical psychology, it will be different. But for us, uh, there's a small group and let's say that then half of the students are actively engaged say like 10 students, whereas if it's like, you know, introduction to psychology may also be 10 students who are actively engaged, but then out of a 300. Yeah. So this is interesting. I have a slightly different experience. I teach in the second year, kind of in between these two mm. stages. Um, uh, first year introduction to psychology being one of the first courses, uh, lecture-based courses that students interact with in, uh, in, in this program and presumably also in sociology mm -hmm. is similar. And there's a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of uh, vibrancy in the, the fact that the courses are new, the experience mm. is new, so many things to learn, so many questions to ask. I often find that in the, in the second year, this kind of enthusiasm has settled to some extent and the number of questions mm. has reduced, possibly because there is a sense that getting answers to these questions doesn't have practical value in their in the students day-to-day -day lives yeah. i don't know how you feel about this uh, amy you've gone through the the program yes i've gone through the program um i guess as well it, i was in exceptional circumstances in the sense that i did start my first year in 2019 so that was you know pre-corona and there was definitely a lot of excitement at the lectures and i remember the attendance was you all going to um, Zernica at the same time, it's just a rush of people from different, and you knew you're a good proportion of your year and you're all going to the same room. Um, so that was nice. And for sure, I had the same experience as you, Sebastian, where like there was definitely a cohort of people that usually sat in the, towards the front and they had the most questions. So that was also how I experienced it, but also did help my learning in that sense as well. And it was always just quite a good, enthusiastic crowd. And then for me, then the second year was different because it was all online. So I had... It was, you know, asking questions, yeah, via Blackboard. And yeah. it just didn't, it didn't feel the same. And I found myself disengaging a lot from um, lectures that were mainly taken online because I it, I just found it, like it, it's something about being in person and wanting to ask the questions. So I'm not sure if my experience is necessarily yeah, as accurate you. as it could have been if it was a couple of years beforehand. But definitely I think that the second year um, program of psychology, there's a lot of courses that you have to take. I know your first year, you also have to take them as well, but. Um, you're definitely a bit more enthusiastic, whereas the second year courses are a bit more practical, I felt like, or, or not practical, but I just didn't enjoy them as much as a whole. So maybe that's also why. And they're still also still very massive, right? If you go to the third yeah. and the fourth year, yeah. then then the number of students in the courses decreases. And then mm. I guess people get more more excited and ask more questions. But the second year may be sort of a, an unfortunate combination of the initial excitement having worn off, but it's still being massive. Mm. Yeah, that's my impression too. This is why I bring this up because I see that um, also in the first year courses that I teach, um, which is primarily intro to psychology when I give guest lectures, the the energy, the kind of enthusiasm that I have in front of me is very, very different um, in all these years. The uh, first year lectures tend to be the ones that are most enthusiastic in, in terms of what kind of engagement you get mm. um, in the community of people in front of you. Tell us a little bit about the preparation you do for lectures. I'm very, very curious on this. I know I've spoken to a lot of people in the past few years about how they prepare for lectures and every answer that I get is completely different. So I'll start with Mitra and sort of give me a, a rundown of the last of the 20 minutes leading up to the first few words that the teacher says when they open a lecture. How do you get there? What do you do when you arrive there? How do you find a seat to to get to? What's going on through your mind? Yeah, because it's I, I live really close to the faculty, so I either way just walk. And so I'm there always like just in time. <laughs> so it's like I always try to find if I recognize someone that is supposed to be there. That's not always the case. but. You know, you always try to find the people you know you can rely on. But yeah, in terms of preparation, I don't do that much because I prefer to first listen and then see if I don't get it. And then I will deep dive on that part rather than 
try to learn everything beforehand and then go in there. So yeah, it's it's genuinely. I always try to keep the teacher on my right side because I'm partially deaf. So that's what I do keep in mind whenever I go to class. But further, not so much. It's just a very organic experience. Like I think in the first year that was definitely different because it was still like, where's the building? What room am I supposed to be in? And it was very stressful. But after a few months, it's, you just walk in <laughs> and you just try to find where everyone is that uh, you usually hang out with, I think. And do you take notes during lecture? Do you use I, I try to, yes. pen and paper? No. Computer? No, I always use the computer because, like, again, because I'm partially deaf, it's really hard to focus and um, write at the same time. So I always try to use my computer to really keep up. Um, so sometimes I also try to do it as much verbatim as possible mm -hmm. as I can do. But not always. Like, I feel, especially now in the masters, because it's so much more information that is being given for this is like general knowledge, what you can use for your topic. So then I just pick up what I need and everything else is fine. Does yeah. your mood determine anything about your experience in the lecture? I try not to. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I would be lying if I said no. Of course, if I don't feel as good, I'm definitely not paying attention as well. Um, if I haven't slept that well, then it's also not going to be as easy to take everything in. But in general, I find that I once you get there and you sit there, you do kind of switch on some sort of study mode. So then you do try to pay attention as much as possible. But I don't think it really affects me. And your mood, Sebastian? Well, that does affect the quality of the lectures, I think. I mean, sometimes I, I've had a few times that I was a little bit irritable when I was giving a lecture for reasons yeah, why sometimes you're just a bit irritable and then I feel like there's less the students pick up on that it's, and then you get kind of a frictional sort of atmosphere which maybe in my head mostly or maybe they actually be there but usually actually because I like le lecturing my mood will be okay actually once I start right you get you know, you get an adrenaline boost from actually having to do it so even if you're a little bit sleepy beforehand then, then that will wear off when you're actually uh, so uh, <clears throat> so yeah, my mood determines it, but usually my mood is okay if I give a lecture. And do you do anything to actively uh, prepare the again not content, but the last thirty minutes as you're approaching uh, the lecture hall and as you're thinking about being in that shared space, this mutual experience, as you've both said, do you do anything to actively? Not anymore. Now, you know, it's also a little bit the daily grind, right? The lecture is just one one meeting of several. So if you have like at 9 a.m. in the morning, then I don't prepare. Right? I have a cup of coffee and I go in. Or if it's like at, at 3 and I have another meeting that is until, you know, 2.30, then essentially, no, there is not some kind of uh, Zen-like uh, meditation going on before I go to the... Used to be a little bit when I when I was less experienced and I maybe also felt more nerves and stuff. I, I Maybe I took a little bit more time to actually chill before the lectures, but now it's basically just go. Yeah, I think it's also different if I really go in front of the class and I do take a little moment to just get there early, take a deep breath and then I just go. So I find it interesting that you you say all this. As I said, I've spoken to a lot of people about how they prepare their, their lectures and prepare themselves to, to go into a class or to go into a lecture. And I get hugely different answers every time and indeed i sort of mirror a little bit what you say sebastian that over the last few years your your ability to uh, regulate your mood and its effects on your 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 teaching performance has become uh, smaller and uh, easier mm. to manage but i have to say that to this day i have a very I don't know if it's a strict routine that I follow before every lecture and that's regardless of whether it's at 9 a.m. or it's at 6 in the afternoon. I always make sure that I have a, a half hour break between uh, the last thing I do before going into a lecture and before starting a lecture okay. in which I actively purposefully put myself in a in a particular mood to be in front of a lecture. And it's not just a good mood, but it's a particularly gregarious mood it's a, a mood in which i feel engaged and interested in interacting with people not just having a good voice but actually being interested in people being interested in um, useful sometimes funny but mostly open interactions with people this i find very important in putting myself in that kind of right mindset partly because you as you say sebastian this lectures are one part of and otherwise extremely busy and sometimes frantic and stressful and all kinds of emotional work days. And 
I don't find it very useful for me to be parachuted into a lecture. I know I can remember the material, I know I can perform, but I find it a much more interesting experience for me and a much more enjoyable experience if I'm in the right kind of mindset where other things are out of my mind and my focus is on the people in front of me. Well, what does that half hour look like then? Do you go for a walk or you listen to some music? Or? Yeah, so I typically try to go for a walk or if um, if the weather isn't very good, I try to uh, at least move around a little bit, maybe around the building or um, or somewhere. I listen to either music or conversational podcasts, podcasts where um, the the mood is light and positive and focused on interaction. And mostly I try to think of, try to remind myself what kind of context it is that I'm, I'm going to be in for the next two hours, where I am with these particular group of students in terms of the material that we're looking at, the story, the, the, the big picture narrative of the course, but who they are, anticipating who is likely to be there, anticipating what the environment is going to be like, things like this. And all of this sounds more formal than it is. It's a very loose kind of um, idea. But mostly I try to make sure that there's this gap, this half hour gap between the last wow. activity bef before a lecture mm -hmm. and the lecture itself. I try to make sure that when I enter a lecture hall, I'm in a good mood, basically. Mm. All right. that's, that's all I do. And I've found this to be, it, it's difficult to say because also other things are confounded with this, uh, my experience level and all of that. But I found this to be very useful for me to to approach the the environment purposefully and with some kind of um, calmness. I was also wondering, Tassos and Sebastian, do you ever get sick of, or not sick, but tired of teaching the same lectures every year? No, because it's only once a year, right? It's That's not true. like you're, you're sort of continuously mass producing the same thing. The, the novelty wears off a little bit, but no, I can say that after I've, I've taught introduction to psychology now since 2018 so well, it's still my still and also the enjoyment is not so much especially for these kinds of introductory lectures i don't really feel like the i it doesn't matter that much what i'm teaching it's no. there it would be it's sort of the experience of teaching rather more than that it is actually the the content so to say and that's also why it doesn't really get tired because you know it's the well or maybe you get used to it also to the experience but i don't mind doing the same thing over and over again if it were a more sort of focused say a master level course where it is much more about the content maybe at some point actually i would get a little bit tired of, of doing the same thing over and over again but uh, but i do that much less basically yeah, I feel similarly. Most of the time I find that, um, so I, I've i been teaching the same lectures or the same courses for 13 or 14 years now, and I've yet to become tired or less passionate about being in the, in the lecture room. It changes a little bit indeed when the focus is entirely on the content, it becomes a little bit more repetitive. But the, the reality is that lectures never repeat themselves because the context always changes. Yeah. The students are always different. The, uh, I, I find it surprising that different cohorts have very different dynamics to the same material, to me, to each other, and not just uh, in terms of um, um, social matters like Corona, et cetera, but just cohorts that by all accounts are essentially identical to one another. The material is identical. I'm similar to previous years. The interaction is very, very different. The kind of energy that uh, you have is very different. But also I know that my engagement with the content changes through the years. I understand things in new, in new ways. I understand things in new perspective. I have over the past 10, 15 years learned new ways of explaining material from multiple perspectives based on student questions, based on interactions with students, based on my own preparation. And all of this creates a kind of flexibility that makes a lecture fresher for me every time because it's. I feel like I'm more able to pivot flexibly and create a new lecture each time. Do you feel like you're sick of lectures, Amy? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll take that. <laughs> and you learn, you can also improve the lectures a little bit year over year, right? I mean, so 
not everything goes smoothly. And then you you notice some lectures go a little bit, you know, you feel they're less engaged or there are fewer questions or, and then you next year you can polish it a little bit. Or sometimes, for example, I noticed that it's, so I want students to be very on time, basically. I really dislike it if people come in late. On the other hand, if I'm too sort of harsh about students coming in late, it creates kind of a negative atmosphere also. And uh, and then sort of what I try to do is is start the lecture with something that, like for example, say a Mentimeter poll or something that actually the lecture is started, but it is still, it gives a little bit of sort of uh, a margin for people to come in a little bit late without it actually interfering. And those are those those are things I didn't do initially, and then I they're sort of very micro innovations, of course, not rocket science, but they're little things that make the lectures a little bit better, I think, year over year. That's also the advantage of repeating things, right? Because rep repetition also makes makes uh, practice makes perfect, to say. So, what is a perfect in reverse quotation marks uh, lecture? What's what makes for a good lecture? Not just yeah, all of it. What makes for a good lecture experience? What's your favorite lecture experience, Mithra? What do you think? Uh... I think it is one where I am not only just interested in the topic, of course, because like that is that already makes things a lot easier, but um, also when it just really feels like a lecturer wants to be there. Like you can, we have a few in, in the research master that you can just see that they really love their topic, that they love talking about it, and that they love that people ask things about it because they want to tell more about it. And that already automatically makes you more engaged in the lecture. So especially if, if there's just a little bit more of like, take some time to discuss it, what we just talked about with your peers as well. So we can take a little moment of breathing because like we don't really use the breaks to really talk about the content because of course it's a break. But then you have that moment of reflection that you understand where other people are on the same place in the in the lecture and stuff. And I think, yeah, that, I think that really makes it like a little bit of interaction with each other, a bit with the with the lecturer and just someone who really wants to teach it. That, and, and then it's automatically just so much more pleasant to be there and just feel like you're really part of, of the experience rather than just sitting there and listening. So I feel a lecture is, 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 is a success. If the students learn something, it kind of sort of something blows their mind in a way that they actually find uh, find interesting. Um, so for there are little sort of, for example, in there's one one lecture where I talk about uh, hemi neglect, and uh, and and the students don't really know what it is, right? It's this phenomenon where you have damage to the right parietal cortex and you ignore sort of get an attentional deficit for the left visual field. That's that's a very sort of very strange strange phenomenon. And then I have the feeling that if you introduce that well, and you show them a, vi a video of a dog actually showing <laughs> suffering from hemi neglect, that that sort of blows their mind. And and then I think, okay, that's what a lecture is good for, right? They they it's also it, yeah, I, it's a form of broadcasting, so there's not a lot of interaction, but it served the purpose of actually teaching them something and making them excited at the same time. And I think if those conditions are met, then the lecture is a success. Maybe I should say just rephrase it like that: if if this, if they they learn something and they get enthusiastic about it, then I think the lecture has uh, is, has been a success. And who is responsible for the quality of a lecture? The lecturer, I know it's, obviously. Uh, but is that so? <laughs> yeah. You don't feel that the students are responsible in any way for the quality of this experience? No, I think the students play a role in it. I think especially when you have 300 students, then there is, doesn't make sense to say that they are responsible. Students are the way they are, and sometimes they can be boring or unmotivated, etc. But then that is essentially the way they are, and it is up then to the lecturer or the university also, of course, through uh, regulations, to, to make the best of that. But I think, I, and I know that quite often lecturers actually really have the tendency, if things are not going well, to sort of shift the blame towards the students. But I think that's reversing the tables a little bit. I mean, as a, the, the students are what they are. They're not perfect human beings, for sure. But it is up to you as a, as a lecturer to make the best of that. So I think the, the responsibility really lies with the universities, maybe a better way to say, not just the individual lecturer, but also the university in facilitating the lecturer and the students are the clients, so to say. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> what do you guys think? Yeah, it depends really. Um, I suppose the lectures I've enjoyed the most are the ones, as Mita said, that have had the, the most enthusiastic lecturers. 
and who make it an interactive experience. And I think that's sort of what we've come to a conclusion of the, uh, today with it. Um, there's definitely, I've had some lectures where, yeah, I suppose it was also, again, online mostly, but who didn't engage and who, you know, just uploaded some YouTube videos that they'd already recorded and said, here's the course material, good luck. And that was kind of it. And that was, I didn't watch anything. Yeah. I, I didn't I didn't watch anything because I mm-hmm. just thought, it, yeah, we were also, it sounds weird, but we're also paying for the, the university experiences as well. And it's nice if someone is enthusiastic and motivated to teach their course. And you, you really appreciate when teachers are, I think. And it just makes it an overall more enjoyable experience than some things that are uploaded or recorded, honestly. The problem already is there is a bit of an imbalance, right? Because like as a student, you can't really influence the lecture beforehand so you have no idea what the content is going to be like other than what is being told to you but i do feel like there are definitely also a lot of people that are just sitting there because they want to make like the appearance that they're going to university and rather than actually being there very motivated to learn to put it like that i think the imbalance is actually quite a good point because i understand the frustration teachers have if people aren't contributing, aren't submitting the assignments. And if they are putting in an active effort, that must be very frustrating. I can imagine mm-hmm. that. Whereas I can see where there's a bit of tension between two sometimes, honestly. Yeah. Is this how you would feel? So I take it from the three of you, there's sort of consensus that the primary responsibility in the, is in the hands of the lecturer, um, maybe some secondary responsibility for the university to create certain norms or rules or whatever it might be and that the responsibilities that the students have in a lecture are are very far down the list of responsibilities is that no i don't think i would fully say that because like it's what i mean for more like the quality of the lecture how it actually goes how the content goes then yes that would be more on the lecture and the university but at the same time like you also said like we pay to be here in university we all do that as students and you if you're not actively letting others study or not pulling for yourself then you do also kind of bother your student your fellow students so like i think there are definitely a lot of people maybe that was my experience in sociology but a lot of people who definitely did not really want to be there and then i'm also like why why would you then come because a lot of people do want to come here to study because like i do pick up things better in a lecture than just at home from reading the books so if you're there disrupting it or for whatever reason whether that's just talking to your friends or just not interacting in any other way then i do think there that that's the part that we can contribute by actually asking the questions actually trying to interact with the teacher so yeah, there, I do think there's like some responsibility, but it's more for the experience and not, not so much the quality of the lecture. And maybe it's also like if you talk about it, you can look at it at the, on, uh, from the perspective of an individual student, right? And then I think you can, it makes sense to actually assign some responsibility to the student. You should stu- study well, and if you don't, you fail and it's your own fault. But but if you look at it from the perspective of a lecturer, actually, you have a higher perspective, right? You're, you're, you're lecturing in front of lots of students and the fact that some students are motivated and others are less so, that is the material that you're given. And the, 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 the skill of a lecturer is to actually work with that. And to also, given the fact that students can be very, can be very demotivated and uninspiring, which is a fact, then nevertheless to make the make the best of that i think and then i think it is a sign of weakness or sort of denying your responsibility as a lecturer if you then go down to that individual level and you start pointing at the student yeah but you're not trying hard you're not trying it's like a it's like a writer blaming the readers for not liking uh, his or her book you know what i mean i mean it's just i guess you can look at it from that perspective but i'm also thinking of this from the perspective of i know that when my lectures go well Partly it's due to the fact that the students lean in and actively engage with the things that I have prepared for this experience. Mm -hmm. I think what you're describing is, I don't share the same experience as the one that you're describing, Sebastian. I think that the lecture for me is primarily for the students, not for the lecturer. And Mm -hmm. from that perspective, I think it's an equal or maybe not equal, but it's certainly a shared responsibility for developing the right kind of environment in which learning can happen respectfully, successfully, enthusiastically, as you put it, and all of these matters. University education shouldn't or isn't 
necessarily easy. It's not an easy activity that we're engaged in. And it requires a certain amount of motivation. And uh, indeed, you've all said that um, actually all of you have mentioned this, that students are in some way clients and that you pay. But I would also take the point of view that there is uh, there is a responsibility. Indeed, we're paying for it or you're paying for your education, mm -hmm. but it's an education that is heavily subsidized mm -hmm. also. This is, uh, let's not forget that your rights should not have been any less if fees were not involved in higher education and the quality of education is primary in this and i feel that everybody is responsible administrators uh, the university as you called it um, people who are responsible for infrastructure but also equally in my view equally students and lecturers when it comes to to being in that I was recently in a performance at the at the main city theater. It was a I forget it was some kind of theater comical theater performance, and in this meta moment, the all the all the cast sort of went back behind the stage, uh, still in the middle of the of the play, and started interacting with each other as if they're on a break, as if we didn't exist, as if the audience didn't exist. And they started talking to each other and going, well, this is a difficult audience today. And uh, yeah, sometimes it happens like this. And what is their responsibility? Who is responsible for this, this play being a success? Is it just us? Yes, we do this year after year, time after time, night after night. But still, we notice that the audience interacts differently. And for me, it was an an interesting moment in realizing that in this shared experience, you've all talked about lectures as being uh, a shared experience. Part of that share is the share of the um, of the load for what it means to have a successful lecture, a, a lecture in which both the teachers, I would say, and the learners come out enthusiastically and feel satisfied with these two hours mm -hmm. that they have devoted in this experience. And for me, this is a, a shared responsibility also. Um, so leading on, because it is quite a discussion between who's responsible. Yeah, and I, I do agree with you, Tassos, as well, that it is um, on both on both sides quite important for the overall um, environment of the lecture to be enjoyable. It needs to be both. It relies both with the lecturer and the student. Do you ever get nervous, Sebastian? No, not anymore. No. So I it wears off, right? I mean, uh, even already before I started lecturing at the university, I, I'd given so many research talks that uh, that the, no, the the nerves were gone. I was like at, like everyone, of course, the first time that I had to give a, a big presentation. Of course, I was nervous, but that was mostly during my PhD, and uh, and then I got over this. Actually, I always say that to to the students, just practice, 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 until you're really over over you've really overlearned what you want to say. And then you do it, you have a good experience because you practice so well that uh, nothing can go wrong. And then over the years, I relaxed that a little bit so that now even when I don't actually overlearn um, and I'm not very well prepared, which even though usually I am, but I'm still not no, nervous now. Um, is there anything that, have you had any embarrassing experiences? Have you had disappointing experiences? Have you ever come out of a lecture thinking, oh my God, I do not want to repeat this experience again? Not I'm sure you have. So what was it? <laughs> so actually during lectures, I, I would say sometimes it goes well, sometimes it goes less well, but I've never really had like what I would say is an embarrassing experience. Just just that I felt ah, this was not my best day. I did during uh, exams. It's not what it's, I guess, just to give you an embarrassing experience anyway, just to share that. Is, uh, I, I, it was a few years ago. And so Introduction to Psychology has these massive multiple choice exams, right? And then, uh, so you have A, B, C, D, more printed questions on paper. And I accidentally, for the majority, but not all of the questions, had reversed sort of B, option B and C. Was that your year? That was yeah, my exam. Right. So, so, and that was, of course, very unfortunate because it got very mixed signal, right? Like, what is option C? Is it like the third or is it actually the second that is labeled, labeled C? It basically invalidates the whole exam. And uh, and even though we we check we double check right we have like a procedure when you know that we but for the for the students who are listening we actually have a pretty thorough procedure where multiple people have to check an exam 
and some form of change, well, change in attentional blindness, I guess, made that slip through. And I discovered that during the exam, and that was a very, that was a super unpleasant moment. That was probably the worst, worst moment in my teaching, uh, teaching career because it was clearly catastrophic. It was, I found out on the spot, it gradually discovering that it was not one answer, but were actually it applied to the whole exam. And it was also embarrassing because it, of course, it's a very avoidable mistake, right? I mean, how could that happen? It did, but how? Yeah, but this is partly the 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 consequence of doing the same thing so many times that just if, guess, if your success yeah. rate is 99.9%, yeah. there's always that tiny little fraction where something is going to go wrong and do it often enough, at some point yeah. it's going to happen. I remember speaking to a colleague many years ago, I forget who it was, who told me that in their exam, they had forgotten to delete the little asterisks <laughs> before the correct alternative nice. in this multiple choice nice. exam. I guess it was good, well evaluated that course. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least the success rate was perhaps uh, good. Mitra, do you get nervous? What is it like for you to ask questions or even worse, God forbid, answer questions in a lecture? How does that feel? Well, yeah, it's there is always this weird panic that happens at first, right? Because like everyone, we are just listening, then suddenly there is a question like, what could this be? And then suddenly everyone is silent. Even if you were like right on topic, then sometimes it just kind of vanishes from your mind. It's like I mean, everything the, I could think of is just gone. The silence after the lecturer has asked the question. Yeah, you the mean, silence. It's the silence of death when, yeah. when souls die. Yeah. <laughs> it, just, it just disappears sometimes. But at the same time, I find myself very often being one of the first ones to break it. And that also gets repetitive. So then I also stay quiet. And that just <laughs> makes it worse somehow. But yeah, I, I try not to stay silent if someone asks a question, but... Do you like answering questions, Amy? I have never answered a question in a lecture Have before. you ever asked one? No. All right. <laughs> so uh, this is, Amy, this is homework for you. I want, <laughs> before Christmas, I want you to ask a question in a lecture. In front of everyone or with the... Well, yeah, ideally oh, yeah. in front of everybody. And not in the context of a no. podcast. No. <laughs> <laughs> because it is really stressful if there's yeah. like... A lot of times when the teachers also ask, like, are there any questions? Then any question you ask just disappeared. Or very often, especially with the people that are very passionate about it, and I'm just completely lost. I just don't know what to ask, so I don't. Yeah. No, it's true. And even I was at a Q&A um, before an exam, just this block, and I just felt really bad for the professor. Because, no, like, it was sort of an open Q&A. So there was a couple of questions, but we had already only been sitting there for about 20 minutes, and then it was mm -hmm. sort of over. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people came, but just no one asked me. That, that is very painful, but it is yeah. also, in a, in a way, I mean, you these these painful silences after after you know when there is an open, they happen, but they're also avoidable. If you have a little bit of experience as a lecturer, you know kind of how to avoid it by asking questions that are not too open, because if you ask so. You know, if you ask, like, does anyone have any questions? Very likely, no one will. But if you ask, like, about this specific thing, you know, when we were just talking about, uh, I don't mm. know, whatever, uh, Alzheimer's, do you do you feel X or Y or something? There's a little bit of a constrained question that actually gets people to, then the, the, the answer rate, the engagement ratio is, is much higher. And that's also a little bit what I mean when I say that the experience, that the responsibility lies with the lecturer, because these these things are predictable. If you have a large group of students, you know how they're going to, that, that they, if you give them an open question, they're not going to engage. And you can get angry that the students are so lame, but that's what just the way they are. And then it's up to you, the skill of the lecturer, to, to, to ask questions that lend themselves to actually uh, engagements from the students. Yeah, but I also think like th that's, that's a bit of a mindset I'm trying to train myself in as well, because um, again, we are going to university to get our degree. And the only one you don't help by not asking a question is yourself. So if you're holding back and just not answering the question or not asking a question, then you're going to find out at the exam that you really didn't understand it. <laughs> so the best thing would be to still ask it. But yeah. yeah. How do you feel about attendance? What well, does that mean to you, both of you, for that matter? I know you've said uh, before that you like being there in person, hmm. and I presume you want your students to be there in person. How does that 
change the way you are in a lecture and how you feel about it. I like it much more when attendance is high and it's also very difficult not to take it personally, basically, if it, if it isn't, you know, because you're, you're, you're giving sort of a theater performance, so to say, and you want people to be enthusiastic about it. And if they don't show up, of course, it's a lack of enthusiasm, nothing else. Everybody wants to sell their show yeah, out, right? Essentially. Yeah. 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 So it's like you're getting a bad review. And um, yeah, so and it's actually also one, one of the things that I really disliked about the Corona because I actually never had to teach fully online because I'm, and my courses were always in the sort of the, the inter, interbellum, so to say, between lockdowns. Uh, but nevertheless, there were restrictions. And so that not that many students could could come and then I would monitor kind of see how many students were on the chat, but it felt like it was very, very minor. And actually also last year when there was still sort of, there were not many restrictions, but there was, there was still sort of a tendency for students to go uh, to, to watch online. Attendance was very low. I, I found it very, uh, very disheartening, basically. It really reduced my, my enjoyment, my work satisfaction. And I think also the quality of the lectures. And, and again, that kind of ties then, then sort of I felt, and I think all the lecturers did that, we felt this kind of frustration towards the students where on the one hand, students were sort of whining that they all wanted to go back to university and then they could and they didn't, right? And that felt, mm -hmm. felt annoying. But uh, then, the, then still at the end of the day, the, the university took that responsibility and they basically changed, for example, they by default uh, disabled uh, the online, uh, the streaming and, uh, and making the lectures lecture recordings available afterwards and that actually was an intervention that's a bit childish on the one hand but it did actually boost boost attendance a lot and and i think made the study experience for everyone much better so this year i think i hope you you all agree with it but this is a good year i think i actually disagree with that like i really prefer smaller groups like when so of course sociology is not as uh, big as psychology but let me let me stop you then there <laughs> i mean we all prefer smaller groups but we don't prefer a very small group where there should have been a very large group, right? If you have a lecture of 10 people and there were, were 11 people enrolled, then that's good. But if you have a lecture of 10 people and there were 350 enrolled, that's bad. So that's well, the context. I maybe think. not. Maybe no. Mithra, maybe is that else? not what you mean? No, no, no I, I do mean that because like when I uh, when I did my lecture as well, I was supposed to teach for like 80 people or something. But in the end, there were like 15. I really like that it was actually a smaller group so I could really interact with them as well and ask them more questions and also okay. see how they were responding to that. Because if you have to pay attention to so many people at the same time, it's really hard to see if people are actually following what you're saying. And because it was so small, I could really target them, ask them, what do you think about this? Because I could see for some people that they were doubting or some, or that they had a different opinion on something. And that really sparked the ability to really engage with them. And the same as also as a student, when the group is just not as full, also the people that are less motivated are less likely to be there. Mm -hmm. So people are paying attention, people are asking questions. So you're also learning more from each other, I feel rather than when everyone's there. <laughs> but if you stand in front of 15 students and you know there are 85 or whatever, the number that you, then don't you feel like they're, okay, with those 15 students, maybe you can have a good experience, but there are still 70 <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. not there, right? And they are also part of, mm -hmm. part of they should also receive, you know, the, the, I, I the do opportunity. Feel like that's, so that's, that's, but the opportunity to be there is there. So then it's uh, that's the part where I think that's your own responsibility, where you have to contribute to the experience if you want to. And well, you should in any chance, because you do want to graduate, I hope. But no, I don't think it really matters. I'm just happy okay. to be there for the people that are there and then give them a bit more of a more personal feedback moment. So that that makes it much better for me in, the, in my personal okay. experience. All right. All right. Well, that's fair enough. But now for me, I, I do actually, if, if I know that a lot of students are missing from the, I do do see that as a, as a lack of success as part of failure, essentially on my part. Yeah. For me, it's very interesting to hear. I always wonder what it feels like to be uh, a student in a lecture in general, in one of my lectures in particular, I, it's been a, too long since I last attended an actual lecture as a student from the perspective of a student, not just mm -hmm. a, um, an audience member. And I've slowly creeped into cer having certain attitudes and having certain positions about how it should be because I'm a teacher now and I do this is what I do. This is the these are the people I interact with. 
but I also know that this is not uh, the shared experience that uh, a lot of other people who go to my lectures have. And I find this very valuable to to be able to interact in this way and um, and come to to bridge some of these gaps of perspective. Sociology. Do you guys clap at the end of a lecture or not? <laughs> I think we only really do that when there's like a guest lecture. Okay. Then we do, but otherwise, no, no. Maybe the first time, first uh, first year, I think we did the first lecture, but for for the no. Sebastian, how do you feel when you give a lecture and people don't clap at I the would end? Be, I would be destroyed. You would be crushed, <laughs> wouldn't yeah. you? You would spend the rest of the week in a fetal position. Hypothetically, be because that is never happened. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> Maybe you should teach in sociology, although guest right. lectures. Yeah. Um, do you find any... Do you teach in both uh, the international and the Dutch group in psychology? No, only I only teach, I teach sort of in the, the later years, of course, they converge. Yeah, and then sure. I teach uh, teach mix, but I don't teach purely the Dutch cohort. No. Mitra, you did sociology and that's through Dutch, right? Or, yeah, that's yeah. completely Dutch. And then you have um, obviously your master's and I think that's probably through English. That's, yeah, so how is international. Yeah, how is that? Is there a difference in cultures there where... It was maybe a different way of approach of Dutch students to international students, or did you experience I anything? I don't feel like there's a lot of difference necessarily in approaches. What, yeah, I think it's because mainly the teachers are also mainly still Dutch in our um, in our lectures in the research master. I do notice like that some people do struggle a lot with English, and there are actually some teachers that I know that that literally just speak Dutch, but translated. So very often I understand what the sentence is, but then I'm also like translating at the same time, trying to figure out what it is. But I think for like the international students who do not speak Dutch, that might get a bit more complicated because the sentence structure is so different. But further, I don't really feel like there's much of a difference in how lectures are given, except that they're even smaller than the, the groups are way smaller than the sociology. Do well. they clap there? Do you clap at the research master's lectures? No. That's, no. Uh, Mitra is shaking her head uh, for those who don't have the, the camera on. Um, <laughs> this is an interesting thing. So I teach in, in both the Dutch and the international and uh, in minor courses where the groups are mixed. And I have to say, uh, here's a, an official appeal to all students clap at the end of the lectures. I don't. It's not an ego right. think it's not um it's not a desire to feel validated at the end of an experience but it is a really good punctuation point at the end of a lecture nothing feels flatter than something ending in silence and in this deflated kind of manner i give similar lectures in the dutch in the in the international and the response changes the way you feel about being in the lecture Oh. And similar requests, of course, for teachers to make their lectures clap worthy. But this has been something that I found affects the way that I feel when I'm approaching the end of a lecture. I feel like we're reaching some kind of moment of closure in the particular topic and not just the topic, but in the interaction that we've had uh, over the course of the two hours. And without some kind of punctuating moment, it just feels like it's unresolved. I think this is how it feels to me. It feels like a, an experience that is unresolved. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I second that. So clap after the lectures, <laughs> if only because then I don't have to sort of comfort tussles. Especially Sebastian's <laughs> Yes, uh, it's... Uh, yeah, maybe that's just a bit residual from the Dutch high school system. We don't clap there at all. And here, no, but the high group size also to needs to reach a certain you yeah. know, minimum. And before it doesn't make sense if you if you're with ten people, then clapping five feels a no, bit. No clap yeah. if it's a lecture, even if it's three of you, just yeah. clap. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay, all right. Yeah. I take that back. Clap no, I think it goes back to what you were saying in the beginning that it's it it is a mix of teaching and performing. Mm. It is. Much more than other forms of teaching, it's a much more structured experience. Mm -hmm. It's a much more structured uh, two hours or one hour uh, with, you know, we talked a little bit about what makes a good lecture and it has to have rhythm. It has to have moments that are um, high energy and low energy, high value and low value. It has to have waves of attentiveness, waves of uh, all kinds of things. And in this 
I hate to use the word curated experience, but in this kind of structured experience, the beginning makes a big difference. You don't mm -hmm. start your lecture, Sebastian, as you would with uh, with the material in the middle. Yeah, there is kind of an entry, an introduction mm -hmm. to what you do, and there's an outro in what you do. You yeah, try to resolve the topic. And I feel that if we are having the shared experience, that also requires some kind of resolution. The audience quietens down in the beginning, and the audience, I feel, is useful. Obviously, it's not a requirement, um, but it is. it makes a big difference in the entire atmosphere that there is a punctuation both in content but also in the atmosphere. All right, let's have a quick fire round. Funny stories. Any funny stories from your lecture, Sebastian? No. <laughs> I'm sure this is what this is not what your students would say. Maybe I, I, we'll ask no, them uh, afterwards. No, no, it's still seriousness. I feel like we're coming to the end of this episode too. I've really enjoyed talking with uh, with all of you about this topic, but maybe we can close with a very broad question. Um, you've we all have been uh, in higher education for a number of years collectively for many many decades. And um, I'm sure there are things about it that we value tremendously and there are things that we feel uneasy about and perhaps we want to change. So as a way to close this podcast, is there anything that you'd like to change about uh, the education system, either at this university or in this country or in general? So maybe I'll ask Sebastian first and then move to Mithra. Yeah, so... Um <clears throat> This this is not so visible for uh, for the for the students, but like uh, we had uh, Tassel's actually hosted a a teaching afternoon uh, was it last uh, Thursday, and there were very few of our colleagues were actually there, and I think this reflects that we have that that the staff it's I think everyone most people at least take take the teaching seriously, but we don't really interact much. And we have pretty fragmented uh, curriculum as a result because we don't really know what the other people are doing and we don't really learn from each other that much. And I think if one, one thing that might be beneficial or that would be beneficial, I'm sure it would be beneficial, is to actually have a more coordinated approach to teaching so that that's, we don't fundamentally change, the, the, I think, in principle, you know, the mix of having lectures and having small group teaching and, you know, all these things, they are fine, I think. But if we if we approach that a little bit in a more coordinated fashion, I think the teaching quality would, in a subtle but but appreciable way, go up, and it would avoid, for example, with the imbalances in the sense that now we have a, a very large number of social psychology courses, but a very low number of say say experimental psychology or or a very large number of statistics courses, and these things are not design choices; they kind of evolved as a you know over time and i think a more sort of design based approach to the curriculum would be good and that's not the students think oh, this is a very you know it's not really my concern and it's it's not of course but indirectly it, it it does affect the quality of the teaching i think yeah i second that mithra yeah i think there are two things that i i notice a lot like especially now i'm in the research master like i of course i did sociology now i'm doing more developmental psychology because I really like working very multidisciplinary but I find that especially in the bachelor but also still in the master there are not always people that open towards that where I think a lot of things um, can really evolve if you are able to get different perspectives in and if that even if that's just one course or just a small thing but also being able to discuss that with the lecturers during the lecture for example and I find that we have very very strong experts and very good specializations to put it like that but the ability to really talk about multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary uh, things is not that big yet and i think there should just be more opportunities to really explore that in my opinion and uh, the second is coming of course from work life i find that university is of course great for going into academics but i noticed that it does not really relate to how life could be once you get outside of it and of course we have habio where you can get more practical experiences if that's more your thing but i really like the research aspect but also want to be able to still build up more experiences and also have it a bit more aligned with what is expected after university because I know a lot of people that were in the sociology bachelor who were just still trying to figure out what am I going to do after this? Because I have no idea where I have to go from here because you just don't get that many 
examples of what you actually can do after university. Whereas, of course, our higher education is meant to prepare us for work life. So I still feel like that experience is a bit lacking. And I think that is actually very paramount to our further career. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Amy, what do you want to change? I also agree with that point. Actually, it's a very nice one because I know personally, and I'm struggling to know what to do for my master's, for example. I have no idea. I've been yeah, in the same education system the last three years, four years now. <laughs> um, and it, yeah, it, you learn so much about some courses, but not a whole lot about what you maybe want to do afterwards. So mm -hmm. I don't know, like I know with psychology, it can be quite hard to maybe get an internship somewhere, but maybe like a mandatory internship or a, a opportunity to do that that the university could provide would be a very nice opportunity mm -hmm. for people to sort of feel their way around different career paths because i just know that i'm still sort of in a bit of a rut even after taking a year off internships are actually compulsory in the masters oh the that's masters, nice to hear yeah. that actually yeah okay yeah this is a recent development i think it, it started a couple of years ago mm, where yeah. internships in uh, in our faculty have become mandatory at the master's level exactly for the reasons that mm -hmm. you both mentioned I'm happy to hear all of these things that you uh, you suggest, partly because they become really good materials for future podcast episodes. Indeed, uh, the idea, the connectedness between academia and um, and the workplace and what happens, what is life after university, is something that we want to explore in the in the new year as well as uh, internship experiences. What would you like to change? Uh, from my side, yeah, I'm I'm a little bit different on this. I think I would like to see more flexibility, less standardization in education. And I think we are starting to see a little bit more of this in recent years, partly as a, as a byproduct to the corona pandemic where things really got uh, shaken around. And a lot of what I would like to see done differently is um, a more human approach to what education is. Um, this is one of the interests in hosting this episode with you today in talking about the experiences of being in lecture rooms as human beings, rather than strictly speaking as a, as an individual who tries to convey information and as individuals who try to understand information, but simply understanding the human experience. So this is one of the things that I would like to see more develop in the future. It's been very good to talk with all of you today. I really appreciate this. Amy, this, this is the third episode that we have together we have a few more coming up for our audience including including talking about humanizing the classroom uh, talking about diversity and inclusiveness i'm looking forward to to recording these episodes with you me too it's gonna be fun and i'm looking forward to hearing from the audience uh, with uh, new questions we've really appreciated having your questions featured in this episode for mithra and sebastian yes all right well <laughs> thanks for thanks for having us yeah, thank it was you. nice thank you this podcast was a production of the university of groningen